Welcome everyone to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that he never gets blood in the eggs he serves while working at the family diner. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Attachment is the root of suffering. The Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 310, Karen, is sponsored by Penny's Place Diner. Oh, brother, are you in for a mother? of a meal. <laughs> well, Pete, before we dive in, I have a fun little factoid connected to Daredevil, although I will admit not this episode. This past weekend, I'm watching The Ocean's 8, and I'm having fun, and I'm checking in out its Wikipedia entry, and I find out that it and this uh, a particular episode of this season of Daredevil were filmed at uh, what used to be, or I guess it still might be called, but what was originally built as the Arthur Kill Correctional Facility. Pete, you'll never guess what that used to be. A prison? A prison. Uh, it closed in 2011. It was bought last summer by a company called Broadway Stages that has uh, soundstage and uh TV and film production stuff throughout New York, a company that started super tiny, now has 50 locations. It bought the Arthur Kill Correctional Facility after the prison had closed, bought it for, I think, $3.5 million or put $3.5 million into it to turn it into, to bring it up to code, to make it a film and TV production facility. That's why that episode of Daredevil felt so realistic. It was in a real prison that also was kitted out to be a, uh, a film and TV production spot. There you go. I got to wonder, did they go all the way, Matt, back to Staten Island to film Fagan Corners, Vermont, population 9,000? Uh, well, I'll tell you this. That looks – I don't know where they filmed that. That Whatever exterior location they used for that, they were absolutely soaking in – the hills, the snow, the woods, and all that. That was not some green screen kind of kind of stuff going on, on there for Vermont. Well, uh, we'll have to figure out where they film that. Water in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Flashing back to before, a party with a boom-boom beat and Karen not wearing very much as she pours an ice shot or something. Look, your podcast pals weren't that interesting in college, okay? A classmate pulls her aside to talk about his prometic thesis, and Karen takes a bump of the old nose candy. Turns out she's the dealer, complete with her own muscle, who roughs up the flat boy trying to steal her stash. Namaste. The episode's written by Tamara Betcher-Wilkinson. She wrote A Runaways and Two Iron Fists this year. And directed by Alex Garcia-Lopez. He did a Luke Cage and two Cloak and Daggers this year and a Punisher for next year. Oh, and he directed that prison episode of Daredevil this year as well. Still in the past, Karen is counting cash and smooching her bouncer boyfriend in their trailer. It's a good life, though she's called to Penny's place in Fagan Corner, Vermont. It's a lovely location, snow in the hills. As she pulls up to the diner, there's a grand old house out back, but she races into the diner, helping open the place for the day. Papa Paxton is hopping mad her prep isn't farther along, and Karen passes along an order to Brother Kevin from the sheriff. Dad stepped outside, though, to receive that new $5,000 cooktop that they can't afford. 
She drops the eggs off to the gruff sheriff, but her nose is bleeding in them. Later, she's taking out the trash, and her caring brother has a letter to share. He's pushed her back into the college path. He wants her to get out of Fagan Corner, Vermont. Her boyfriend isn't opposed to the idea either, wondering if she should let the diner go under. Or maybe even if she should sell more drugs with him. She then gets called back to the diner. Dad wants to celebrate her going to Georgetown, and he's made Karen cakes, the biggest pancakes you've ever seen. She's aloof and cranky, even as Dad tries to tough talk her. Mom hated this place and this diner and kept it going for Dad and was dying inside long before she got cancer. Whoa. Flashback Karen is bitter Karen. She's picked up by boyfriend Todd, leaving Kevin in the dust. They slip off for the combination of bourbon and cocaine. Not a good combination. They return to the trailer, which has been set spectacularly aflame by Kevin. Todd beats Kevin with a tire iron and is set to keep beating him before Karen shoots Todd. Brother and sister drive off. Why did Kevin do it? Because he's already lost mom. Karen, high and drunk, looks at him, not the road, and flips the jeep. Later she awakes, he does not. Her father, finding his son dead, howls in pain at the sight of his dead son, and Karen covers her ears. A little time passes, and the diner is closed until further notice. Dad reveals that the sheriff will report Kevin crashed the car by himself. This saves Karen from prison. Dad's close-ups are delivered looking off-camera. For Karen's close-ups, she looks into the camera, Deborah Ann Wall staring at us. Her father doesn't want her there. In the present day, Karen is hiding at the church. She looks at a picture of her family and pops some pills. Father Lantham arrives with a meal and news that Sister Maggie will give her safer options soon. He invites Karen to Mass. She might not be Catholic, but strictly speaking, most in attendance aren't. Lantham gives an argument for religion that transcends his particular brand, rhythm and ritual, a little peace and clarity. But how do you deal with the fact that you've lost, Karen asks. He reminds her that all can still be redeemed. Outside the church, Kingpin and Dex have her location, and the NYPD is going to stay clear. Kingpin talks about Wesley, who was like a son to him. Fisk fumes about Karen Page, then finally says it. Dex is to kill her. Matt, back at the hotel, is told that Fisk wants to kill Karen. Fisk is back, and... His lady who minds the screens says that Matt has to act now, or Fisk will triple security. Inside the church, Lantham talks about the difficult time for Hell's Kitchen, that we feel we are not strong, we are not safe. Yet here we are, stronger and safer, and Karen Page! Daredevil Dex cries out. He knocks out two church patrons while some run and others hide. Karen stands up to him, ready to be killed by him, but our Daredevil arrives. Matt is knocked down, but Dex takes aim at Karen. She's ready to die, but Lantham steps into the path of the throne knife. Dying, the father asks Matthew to forgive him. Karen signals for Matt to make a path so that she can get the worshippers out. A few smashed confessionals later, the way out is clear. Dex, in a bloodlust, beats on Matt needing Karen to refocus him on the kill at hand. She runs up to the balcony with Dex not far behind. She's ready with a long ornament, and once Matt arrives and is felled, she knocks Dex off the balcony and onto his back on the floor below. A moment later, though, Dex is gone as Karen cradles Matt. 
Objection, Your Honor. He's badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, let's start with that coke-seeking frat boy. A, don't do drugs. B, stay in school. C, not nice to hit a lady. Yeah. Uh, he's he, he's our upfront villain of the episode. He is, and probably best he doesn't get a name. The ignominy, Matt, of not being named here other than being in a fraternity. All Pete is not pro-fraternity, Matt. Well... It certainly was, it was quite the frat scene uh, that we saw there, Pete. And uh, as I know you heard in my recap there, some of that party stuff going on there, you know, your podcast pals are definitely not partaking of much of that in college. Certainly not, you know, the drugs. Um, I I wondered initially what show we were watching. And I think that uh, that uh, frat house boy here kind of summed up the, the, the hard start to this episode. Listen, Fantastic Geek studies hard, we play hard, but a lot of the things in that scene, there's a reason why it's never going to happen on the Disney streamer. Are you sure, Pete? Because uh, some people are making uh, petitions on petition.org. That makes a difference, right? To have a petition, to have a rollicking, uh, out-of-control frat party? I don't think Disney's going there. Pete, you, you're telling me that in the menu for Disney Play, you don't think that in between episodes of Tailspin and, uh, I don't know, Goof Troop, you don't have this episode where Karen is wearing not a lot and pouring drinks and serving Coke all before the credits? That's not all one big brand? I don't think it's going to happen somehow, Matt. But between the Coke-seeking frat boy and then rescued from him by that loser Todd Neiman, who I initially was suspicious was her brother, um, given how similar their hair color was, only to be revealed later on as bad boyfriend Todd Neiman. For some reason, because I don't think his, in fact, I know his name is not given up front because initially he's just guy who saves the day and then she's, you know, with him and so on and so forth. For some reason, I just had in my head the way in Terminator 2, Edward Furlong says, Todd, like, of course he's a Todd. (laughs) Um, I, I have to say, Pete, this was a setup to the episode. I was enjoying each scene and I was saying, oh man, it's gonna be a whole episode of this. And we're going to get to the end, and it's going to be where we left off last episode. They're coming to kill her, and it's going to be Netflix bloat and blah, blah, blah. And then I got sucked in by this story and these characters. And I think that the character of Todd is a good example of how successful this flashback story is. Because you get him as a well-rounded character, a villain, surely. But, for example... He wants Karen out of the diner, and he kind of almost implicitly, you know, if she's going to choose college life and leave me behind, I don't think he wants that. That's like he doesn't not want it. There's that character depth to him, even though he's willing to beat up a kid with a tire iron uh, and sell cocaine and be generally terrible. Yeah, I mean, the, the desperateness of Karen's experience really comes across in her relationship with this other character that we can see all at once what led 
to the events of the death of her brother, uh, the estrangement from her father, uh, her ability to fire a gun, um, her sordid past, uh, though gifted intellectually and deferred from Georgetown uh, up to sling, uh, you know, bacon and eggs at six o'clock every morning to the the town police chief that, you know, she's barely hanging on, that she's capable of so much more, yet she's, uh, you know, just numbing herself. The, the scene before uh, the fight with the um, between her brother and, and Todd where – you know, she's doing drugs, she, she's drinking heavily, uh, to me is completely emblematic of this episode and really Karen as a character at that point in her life. Pete, this episode had me thinking about the importance of setting in fiction. Um, you get the sense that not only is Fagan Corner a small town, although I mean, you know, kudos to the episode. We really only see the the quarry where the trailer is and the uh, the diner in the home there. But you get a sense that it's this small town with nothing around it. We live in an area of New Jersey where there are some small towns, but then there are towns right next door. There's, you know, if you want to work your way out of the area academically, two-year colleges, four-year colleges, if you want to work your way out, in the restaurant industry, there's plenty of places to work galore. There's kind of options and ways out if you want to change your life. You really, really get the sense in this episode, in a setting that ultimately is kind of limited to what you see, that there really, really is no way out. Yeah, and you feel for the character at the same time we, you know, acknowledge the poor choices she's making. And that she can do better. And I think that's what makes this great TV rather than just cut and dry. You know, Karen's an awful person. Next on the list is uh, her father, Paxton, who I have to say, Pete, I was racking my brain watching the episode. Who is this guy? Where have I seen him before? Start going through his IMDb, going back five years, 10 years, 15 years, nothing. Who is this guy? Uh, Chet from Weird Science, uh, the cable TV show version of it. I was going to like, say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not the, the late Bill Paxton. <laughs> um, who, my Chet, Matt, hashtag my Chet. Uh, the one from TV, huh? Yeah, although Pete, hold on. And I'd have to, I'm going to look up the character now. Maybe he has a long comics history, but... Chet from the TV show Weird Science, that actor plays the father in this. Father's name is Paxton. Bill Paxton plays Chet in the movie. I mean, what? that's I mean, awesome. <laughs> that is. I mean, for, for all we know, uh, Paxton Page might have been named, you know, back in 1962 or something like that. But um, my mind just got blown, Pete. Bill Paxton, also a Marvel character. Um, yeah, it's, it's all weirdly connected. I'll say this, Pete, I know, I know why he's on the villain list in terms of, uh, perhaps a bit more appropriately, he's a protagonist. Um, I don't know that he, in fact, I can talk about this. I could say with confidence, he's not a villain on the same level as, uh, 
easy to smack women around frat boy or <laughs> easy to smack brothers around Todd Neiman, you really, really sense that dad is somebody who, if not backed into a corner by life, you know, he's, he's set on this path, the small town diner owner, and there aren't a ton of options outside of that, both in reality, also emotionally because of the death of his wife and all of this. Again, a super complex character who's in half of the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes of this episode, you get so, so much out of him as a person. Yeah, between the desperation over the diner, uh, wanting to buy the new grill, putting them in further debt, the way he's uh, pushing his daughter and his son, and then, you know, the, the love... At the same time, the the anger that he has with Karen as he both saves her and pushes her away um, so that she doesn't go to jail. I like that he you get this side of love and the side of hate from him and you see it not just in that scene, but in the uh, the Karen cakes scene where. You know, he wants to celebrate the fact that she's going to improve herself and get out of this town and get an education. But then the minute the minute that she steps out of line, he wants to hold her accountable for that. I, I don't know whether it is appropriately or inappropriately. I don't know whether it's a sign of his lack of care or caring too much or whatever. But again, there's just this there's so much to this character who. Uh, we might not see uh, any more of for the rest of the season and depending on Netflix's decisions that we might not see any more of ever. That we heard him once before that we had the, the front loading of this, that, uh, you know, that's what you do, Karen, and that it's not the right time for you to come home. And now, smartly, we've had an episode that was not completely a flashback. I was a little wary, like we're going to get an entire flashback episode and and kind of pause that storyline of uh, everybody converging at the church. And instead, it, it gets its due course of this episode, gets about a half an hour, a little bit more. And then we're back in the church. Karen has that heart to heart with Father Lantham, which makes all the more heartbreaking what goes down. Uh, by the way, Pete, just to put a quick button on the Paxton page thing, looks like that is the name from the comics. Uh, so <laughs> Pete, I guess just good old Bill Paxton looking over all of us with, with a weird coincidence, but a coincidence nonetheless. RIP. RIP indeed. Pete, no question as to the brief but vital and powerful villainy of Fisk in this episode. You see him, you know, you kind of see him internally shaking uh, because of these acting choices that Vincent D'Onofrio makes. But you see him filled with anger over the death of Wesley, the need for revenge, and that order, go kill Karen Page. Yes, and the admission that he was as close as he was with Wesley, um, we knew that it got under his skin before, but to hear it come out of his mouth in this episode, um, much like with Paxton, you know, to somebody who could be so upset with someone yet at the same time have love for them that we, there, there's this misguided sense within Fisk, 
Um, but at the same time, he's capable about caring for other people. I have to wonder too, do we accept him on the implication? Do we accept him on the word he said and then the implication that he offers up when he says that he viewed Wesley as a son and he sees much of that, the implication being, hey, Dex, I see son material in you. A, Pete, do you believe him? And B, does he mean what he is suggesting or is he taking a truth and turning it into juice for for uh, evil daredevil here? Oh, he's clearly manipulating. That's who he is as a character. Well, that was certainly easy. Um I was struck too by this scene where they're in the uh, the SUV. There's so much action going on to Fisk, and I kind of each time I see him doing things, and I see the choices that I think D'Onofrio is making. It's like, is he doing too much? And then there's so much going on that even if he is making too many acting choices, it's coming out as this this fully realized kind of manic guy with these little movements and the kind of everything that's there it's almost like you can see the 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 parts making the whole but the whole is still greater yeah and i think that in terms of performance risen even higher in as little screen time as it's given well pete last on the list is dex who uh, is pretty uh typical Dex go kill people in this episode, uh, even with the uh, the bad fall that he takes at the end. How did he get away? Is something we'll discuss in our sidebar segment next. But um, just a different type of fight. The setting really ups that a notch with the lighting, with the uh, not that there weren't. Um, you know, bystanders around in the uh, the bulletin attack, but a little bit different. And here they're they're trapped in uh, what do they call that? The nave of the church um, in the episode, and uh, Karen's able to usher them out. But uh, yeah, I mean, Dex goes deeper and deeper to the dark side here. Uh, his choice is very clearly made. It's rare that it's a good thing to be thinking about how an episode is made um, while you're watching an episode or same for film. Um, because usually if you're thinking about that, then then kind of the, the conceit of it is having attention called to. But during this fight, it crossed my mind, I guess similar kind of picking up on the setting stuff from uh, the diner earlier. I was like, all right, this clearly is a real church. There's no way that this is blue screened or whatever. This yeah. clearly is a real church. What's that discussion like when you're like, hey, uh, I'm from the Marvel. Um, we have Daredevil, you know, about uh, a Catholic who goes up the to the devil. Uh, yeah, he also has devil in his name. Um, and in this scene that we would love to shoot at your church in exchange for a fee that we'll negotiate so that we can hopefully help contribute to the church community and then all the things that you do and restoration of all the statues and helping the poor and all that uh here's what the scene is going to be okay uh an fbi agent who kills people is going to fight our hero who's a lawyer who hurts people um and we're going to bring in like some balsa wood you know like um stuff that they can throw around and, and hurt each other oh and by the way the people who are in church for god 
Um, a couple of them are going to get beat up. Oh, and we're going to kill a priest with a knife. So <laughs> what's the fee? Like, yeah, it's it's an <laughs> excellent question in in terms of how they did that. If anything, Matt, there there's there's this need for behind the scenes stuff when it comes to Marvel TV that we barely scratch the surface of. If only there were a couple guys around <laughs> who could who could like, you know, be the ones to relay that content. Instead of the Marvel podcast, it's gonna talk about this this week's issue of Ironheart. I think it's a multi-layered problem, and at the center of it all, at the center of let's say Marvel Netflix is two companies that want to keep as many secrets as possible, which is the opposite of you know like the official Lost podcast or the official um um good place podcast where it's like we're going to open up the vault here and have the discussion we're going to do so with people who can keep it quiet and not share the secret or not spill whatever right but you know when you're in this hyper secret thing then you of course you don't want to talk to anybody about how you got this church because then all of a sudden it might get out there that in 310 you have a church where two daredevils fight oh man and who he throws stuff really accurately oh good news pete it's may 2018 uh it's bullseye and they fight in the church and that's like the end of the ben affleck movie and everybody hated that so nobody go watch it and everything's <laughs> lost now nobody's gonna watch it you know like that i think that's the thinking that they're in as opposed to celebrate the fandom which I think is also a problem. Like, you know, we'll tweet at some of the writers or the directors of these, Pete, this is a job they did a year ago in a writer's room that doesn't exist anymore currently. So there's kind of not that fidelity of, as they say with Star Trek Discovery, like I'm on the staff, you know, right. or even some of the people who might be leaving after season two, they're still waiting for their episodes to be shot or their work to be seen or, or all, they're kind of in cycle as opposed to, nope, the circus left town. So nobody needs to have a discussion about, how you got this church, which I'm sure is a fascinating story. I think I've told you the story before, Matt. If not, here goes. Um, when I was a graduate student at Columbia University School of Journalism, uh, students in the print concentration write, the, the master's thesis is a magazine-length article. So at least a 2,000-word uh, heavily researched article that you write for the course of six months. Um, and my initial topic was the mayor's office of film and television, which I pitched as the closest thing. And this was 1997. So it makes sense. The closest thing in New York city to men in black, uh, because they come and they go, there's very little notice and, uh, there's never been a definitive story written on them. My advisor immediately attempted to dissuade me, uh, you know, my 22 year old, uh, cocksure self was like, no, this is happening. Okay. And, uh, let's just say I wound up having to change the story, uh, how wound up having to go in a different direction. Um, which on the way to becoming a sports writer wasn't a bad one, but I really wanted to tell this story of how they're able to do these things. Um, there's a story about Will Smith and how, uh, close he is or was with the mayor's office of film and TV to, uh, 
where he was able to film that scene driving down uh, Fifth Avenue or whatever street it is toward uh, Central Park for I Am Legend in a sports car where the only digital trickery is the weeds in the streets. Um, the mayor's office of film and TV got volunteers and other people to hold the foot traffic back on those cross streets. So it was not visible from the cameras as they filmed that long shot that was in, uh, the film and, you know, used to publicize, uh, the, the film as a trailer. Um, and then what did they do for Will Smith? They, they made sure he could park his gigantic trailer that actually, um, extends upward. So it's like two or three stories in front of a bagel place in, uh, Chelsea or another neighborhood, uh, you know, downtown to the point where the bagel place almost went out of business. Oh, geez. Um, if nothing else, and I mean, so, so a little negativity to that story there, certainly if you're the bagel company, but it speaks to the growth of film and TV production in New York in the last 20 years. Um, and Pete, I just still happen to have the tab open here for Broadway Stages, the company that now owns the uh, Arthur Kills Correctional Facility. And the idea that they've kind of unintentionally, they started out with one rundown movie theater in 1983. Now they're this big powerhouse um to the point that i was on their website earlier and like some of the views they have a a a, uh uh garden on top of their roof or something like that you know for for green stuff and that's all wonderful but we don't need to talk about their wildflower project at the moment but i'm looking at their view from queens of the new york city skyline and i'm like oh my goodness, I think any time any Marvel Netflix show has needed to use the skyline, it's not just from Queens. I think they walk out of one of their yeah. out of one of their sound stages and just go to it. And I think that when Danny Rand went to uh, somewhere in China and they broke into something or other, like, I'm pretty sure that that just wasn't like, hey, we found some warehouses. It's like, hey, we ha- we own warehouses. On the inside, they're shooting, you know, Mrs. Maisel and uh, Mr. Robot, but on the outside, you guys could like run around and do your, you know, we'll hang up some signs that say, welcome to China or whatever. It just gives a sense of all this stuff that gets made in New York. It really, really does. Your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off the record theories. You be the judge. Pete, here's a two-part one, and you stole my thunder a little bit before, but how did Dex survive the fall that we saw in one shot? Follow-up question, how did the actor or stuntman survive that fall that appeared to be on one shot? I don't know how they did that. Uh, it's easy, Matt. Not only did they film in a real church, they dug up part of the church and replaced it with a gigantic gymnastics mat. Then they <laughs> painted that uh, in a realistic way to make it a mat, M-A-T-T-E, uh, upon which um, the actor there, Wilson Bethel, could fall and make it seem realistic. All I know is that I, I suspect you're joking a little bit. Like seeing that happen on <laughs> well, one shot. Well, how do you sell it, isn't it? <laughs> um, 
I mean, certainly, like, look, they're up on that balcony thing. You know, there's going to be a fall of some sort. But to see it kind of happen all in one motion, including the landing, I was like, that never happens. What went on? You know, is it digital trickery? Is it this? Is it that? But phenomenal production moment. Bigger question, one that you beat me to earlier. How does a guy survive a fall on his back onto what is in the story, the the, the cold, uh, hard floor there? Uh, Pete, is it magic? Uh, does he have the power of the Iron Fist? Let's hope not. Um, is it just going to be waved off next episode? And he's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. I'm bleeding on the inside, but I'm okay, Kingpin. What is it, Pete? Please tell me. Well, I know you've speculated that he's powered in, in some way, that he's gifted, that he's enhanced. Um, the other thing, too, you know, and not to sound repetitive because I know I've said it a lot in the last couple episodes, but TV code, you know, TV code for this character is killed off is is two shots and not just one. Um TV code for this guy's going to get up when the camera goes back to where he fell <laughs> is he falls and there's no hard splat. There's no blood running from the spot where he has fallen. There's no blood left when he's uh, he's gone. Um, yeah, I, I think they're going to say he was in the daredevil suit. Hey, that I, I think that's a legitimate story option. I don't know that that's my favorite, but if that's the route they want to go, so be it. Pete, what theories do you have? Fagan Corners, Vermont, population 9,000. I just want to know where they filmed this. Um, the only other time we've seen a setting that uh, not New Yorkish in the least in any of these Marvel Netflix shows was uh, from when Danny went into the cave in Iron Fist season one to fight the dragon. And you mean Danny Rand of Rand Enterprises? I do the same. Uh, we speculated at that time, they probably went across the way to the Palisades. There are some places around there that could easily have stood in for that. I I'm racking my brain as to where approximately they would have gone and filmed this quarry, this small set town in the immediate vicinity of New York City. Well, I think you assume that it needs to be in the immediate vicinity. Um, let's just assume I know I know when we were at the Jessica Jones panel, they gave a number of days they spend shooting per episode. I think it was in the eight to ten range. Uh, I think it was eight days, she said. So let's just assume you set aside four days to shoot this um, this Karen stuff. Um, let's say and they further. may have on that show shot the furthest that we can document. They shot that up at Rye Playland at one point. That's a real park on the border of New York and Connecticut. Um, it's far. I remember. I remember for that podcast, I did the Google Map thing. It, it, depending on when traffic is, it's not as far as you think. Like it's a forty-five minute drive from Central Manhattan. If if the traffic is not a factor, I don't know where there's a quarry in there. We might have to dig deep into that. But here's the point: they so sold the setting 
wherever they filmed it. And we know they didn't go up to Vermont in well, terms of doing that. I, I guess I'm saying they could have, whether it was Vermont or upstate New York or wherever. I think that if you're going to spend half the episode there, there's a certain argument to be made. Do you just take a slightly smaller crew and head up there and shoot what you have to shoot? I don't know that it necessarily has to be like, you know, like, hey, our headquarters are at the Broadway stages in Queens. All right, well, we can only go 15 miles from here. They well could have taken a crew up to a six-hour six drive away and done, done something, potentially. How about Karen's deferment to Georgetown here? What did you make of that? I think that it... Um, I think that we get so much story from that and and this first portion of the episode in flashback is kind of presented so economically um we get the fact from it that she's clearly intelligent not just able to be uh, accepted to college not just any college it's georgetown so on and so forth um but that then the deferment speaks to the sense of responsibility she has for the family i know the character from the comics you know went through phases of uh drug addiction and you know being involved with pornography and this and that the other so you kind of have certainly the, the, some of the, the the drug use in this episode maybe not uh addicted but you get so much here and the contrast to it is her acceptance uh to, to georgetown to the point where she can defer and it's not like oh man it's you know you're a last minute addition or something like that it's no she's securely in and is able to put it on pause um so she has that one option for life or the option for life that we see her taking in the past we're given two different stories about her mother uh who we can assume is named penny um perhaps that's a uh, a linkage to the comics uh but it's it's not directly spoken on screen here one that she left and that she did have cancer, the other that she has died. And I think it's unclear as to her fate, her whereabouts. Well, I'm curious to hear you say that because we do get the, um, you know, mom was dying inside before cancer line. Um, I kind of look at that as therefore mom died by cancer or died from cancer, though it's not said kind of explicitly um i don't know what, what what how do you respond to that i think when they talked about how the town was a drag on her and then she got sick you know did she go someplace else to seek treatment did she rally and then run off feels a little bit matt you know over on the god friend of me podcast we kind of had a storyline like that where you know a, a woman uh you know, one woman was sick with cancer or another one who cared for her uh, had basically left her family in another state. And the serendipity of that situation uh, bringing uh, two younger characters together. Maybe I just have that on the brain, but um, I, I didn't feel as if the mother was definitively um, exposed as having died. Uh, by the way, unconfirmed here, but on the uh, marvelcinematicuniverse.wikia.com, 
uh, it has without any uh, evidence. It says that the third season of Daredevil, uh, Fagan Corners, was represented by the town of Wyndham, New York. Um, there's nothing jumping out on Google Maps that where I say, oh, this clearly is the spot where the house was and the this and the that. Um, how close for, to New York, though? Uh, how close to New York? Let's see. Let's do a quick Google Map thing here. And the answer is about two and a half hours. Oh, wow. I'm surprised they went even that far. That would easily make it the furthest they've, uh, you know, gone to film. But it makes sense given that it was a a longer situation instead of, hey, we need something that passes for a cave. Yeah, and again, I, I will just assume eight-day shoot per episode. This is about half the episode, so... You know, could you sk- could you get all this stuff done in four days? I mean, just back the envelope math. Sure. Is it worth bringing a crew up there to an area where there are, you know, there are some hotels and whatnot. You can bring everybody into town to get done what you need to get done. Uh, probably it's easy enough. It's not going to be super expensive to like, you know, sell, you know, <laughs> to get 10 rooms in the Georgia Garden Inn in Wyndham, New York or something like that. Um, I don't know. I, it, to me, that's more plausible than than not but uh i caution our listeners on uh, unattributed claim here on the wikia so we don't we we don't want to put all our eggs in that basket but uh but who knows pete what else do you have in the theory bag pete did karen contribute to the death of her brother or was he gonna die anyway he was pretty savagely beaten uh blood all over the face um i believed the way that Todd was beating him, he was going to wind up dying there. Did the accident do it? Could it be a situation where we find out later and the guilt you harbored over your brother turns out it was internal injuries, not the car crash that took his life. A, I think if we get a scene like that, it will be a poor use of uh, story emotion and it will be resolving something emotionally that I don't think deserves being resolved, by which I mean, here's what Karen did that night. She <laughs> she drove away from that trailer on fire uh, when she was high and drunk and somebody died as a result of it. You know, to me, that's that's clearly not good and i think that at the very least it contributed to his death if you want to make a if you want to make an argument by inference that he was so badly beaten that he might die okay i mean i don't know how far away the nearest hospital is etc etc but i have to think if they were 10 minutes away from you know uh fagan general metro hospital I, I kind of feel like, you know, you mentioned TV code. I kind of feel like his beating was not so bad that they couldn't patch him up in the ER and get him up to the ICU and medical medical. And now he's on the mend versus, you know, she flips a car over because she's taken two different kinds of substances after which you should not be driving. And he paid a big price and she's paid a huge emotional one. The police officer that swept this accident under the rug so that uh, Karen would not go to jail, um, burying one child, uh, getting one spirited away so that she doesn't suffer incarceration. Uh, Was it swept under or are there going to be people 
you know, Wilson Fisk, among others, who unearth this. I think that if the story goes in a direction where Wilson Fisk gets the manila folder that was in the back of the back of the file cabinet uh, in the, the police chief's, you know, office or whatever, I mean, what does it do for story? He's going to say, oh, look, this is proof that you killed your brother and we're going to make this public okay her brother is still dead that was still public knowledge she can rightly claim you know but i was never charged with it that was the finding of the the sheriff of the police chief of police whatever whatever it was i feel like in terms of public notoriety that's not gonna i think it's just one of those things where you you say wow that's a weird story that i saw in the newspaper or saw online uh well it sure is terrible i'm moving on with my day now like it's not enough to be like you know smoking gun pete there's a Hell's Kitchen lawyer who may dress up as a vigilante. Like, that's saucy. The fact that the brother is long since dead, she may have played a different role than was understood, that's just sad. I don't think that's going to bring her down from what, Pete? From the job she doesn't have anymore? Last one from me. Father Lantham, dead or alive? <sighs> I think it's funny, Pete, we keep returning to story code here when he was giving that affirmative start to the sermon and just not even the words, but the way the camera was placed. There was, you know, this is before Dex shows up. I was just like, oh, man, Father Lantham is toast. Please don't please don't let him die. He's toast. I think that that was his goodbye. Um I think, too, the fact that he's whispering for forgiveness. I mean, that those seem to be the words of somebody who thinks he is dying. I think that was also the story letting him go, which makes me sad because he's a great supporting character, a minor character. But, it, you know, he's offered such great support to the story. Um, I, I hope to be wrong. I hope it's like, you know, the, the mortally wounded Ray who bounced right back in the next episode or the mortally wounded Ellison who bounced right back after a magic hospital visit in the next episode. Um, I hope that's the case, but I think Pete, he's gone to a better place. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, an email from 084. This was written uh, a little while ago. I know 084 has been waiting to have it heard. We are eager to hear 084's words. Uh, and here we go, Pete. Uh, I'll just jump right into my thoughts on 305 through 310. Hey, Pete, that's this episode. That's why we've finally broken the seal <laughs> on this episode. Bullseye. Bullseye, bullseye, bullseye. Holy crap. I was hesitant about bringing the character in at all because we're only 15 years removed from colin farrell's interpretation of him and there are only a finite number of uh showers you can fit into 15 years pete not quite sure if that's a typo there or if i'm meant to be thinking of colin farrell in the shower which is not normally where my mind goes but <laughs> but back to the email here that said they surprised me on Electra last season so i should have trusted them on bullseye too I liked his origin and how they worked it into the story, although I don't normally love when they introduce mental illness into media, only to villainize the character suffering from it. But it was acted superbly, almost scarily, even when he's in the Daredevil suit. He's yearning for a North Star, and the way Kingpin manipulated himself into that position, Dex, uh, that position gave Dex just the slightest bit of sympathy from me. 
and took away a hefty amount of fondness for Fisk as well. They really nailed his power in making it look cool and, again, making it scary. The fact that whoever he's targeting could instantly die as long as he has any potential projectile at arm's reach is pretty terrifying. Both big fights between him and Matt made me understand completely why everyone was pining for this matchup for years. Your thoughts, Pete? Yeah, I think he's been a wonderful addition. You know, you look back at that uh, 2003, what was it, right? Uh, Daredevil movie, and we just shudder how poorly it's aged. I remember, you know, liking it better than most at the time. But the idea now of uh, a comic book character on your TV or your film screen who has a bullseye carved into his forehead would be about the silliest thing you could possibly do. Um, you know, flicking paper clips and other things that he was able to get his hands on. And, you know, I think Colin Farrell did with that what he could, but that we have a lesser named actor who we put aside all of the baggage that a star might bring to this. I mean, geez, Matt, if they had brought in, you know, name your Hollywood leading man type to play this role. Um, I, I think we would have immediately been suspect still kind of, uh, shocked that they admitted out in the open, um, who he was playing at New York comic con. But that aside, the origin and the way they've developed it and the way they continually referred as the character who will become bullseye because he's still in this in-between place right now where we are. More from 084 here. Karen's backstory was pretty much what I expected it to be a few minutes in when I realized they were structuring most of episode 10 as a flashback. I thought I would be bored, but I actually wasn't. A lot of what she's gone through since season one makes more sense from seeing the first time she shoots someone to her survivor's guilt to losing basically everyone around her by death or by resentment. All of that is reflected in the other two seasons of Daredevil at least once. And let's talk about her sitting right in front of Fisk, not just admitting that she killed his best friend, but rubbing it in his face. Mm -hmm. I think I said Karen no about a hundred times <laughs> and each time she seemed to say Karen yes back to me. It's such a wonderful scene, and we talked about it in the previous episode. If if that's not at their fingertips when it comes to Emmy and other awards submission time, then you know whoever's making those decisions, Matt, uh, Jeff Loeb's got to talk to. Continuing here, I have huge problems with the treatment of Melvin Potter. I had thought Fisk would have uh, both him uh, and Betsy be killed for making. Uh, that Daredevil suit in the first place, but it's pretty clear that Fisk is never going to do anything to Melvin. He'd manipulate him and threaten him, sure, but I think he sympathizes with him too much to actually harm him. Compare it to Matt getting Melvin arrested and briefly giving Betsy a heads up and then just going shruggy, shruggies, struggles, uh, and moving on. And Fisk and Matt are basically just oscillating shades of gray when it comes to their treatment of the couple. Uh, another bullet point here, Pete. Sister Maggie was amazingly cast. Joanne Wally plays her with almost uh, plays her almost apathetic at times, but with yeah. emotion just aching to get out every second. 
Her story of why she couldn't stay around Matt as a child was pretty heartbreaking. It doesn't absolve her of blame, but grants her some small bit of understanding. I think they either should have cast a younger actor to play Jack in those flashbacks or a slightly older looking actress to play her, unless they're meaning to convey that there was a huge age difference between the two. That took me out of it because Jack looked about 20 years older than Maggie. The point about Melvin Potter is a really good one that 084 brings up. Um, I have to disagree. I think Fisk is the type of person that if something could blow back on him, regardless of who it is, could have even been Wesley, he's going to eliminate it. Um, even though he is trying to get Vanessa back and what she means to him, um, I, I think that push comes to shove if that's something he, he's called it a prison before uh, he, he might try to escape that prison. A prison of the heart. Uh, continuing here, Pete, I went all this way not talking about the title character. Can someone help me find Charlie Cox's Emmy? Because as much as I love Vincent D'Onofrio this season, his best work on the show was in season one. Charlie Cox has stepped up every single episode he's played Matt Murdock. To go this whole season playing Matt was an absolute at his absolute lowest point. He takes his understanding of this character to a whole other level. More of my praise for him will come in my next email. Uh, he then goes on to say, uh, "Oid Four does Marcy Stahl's a national treasure. That is all." <laughs> uh, then Father Lantham's death hit me really hard. He delivered one of the best monologues on television back in season one, and that's saying something on a show that has some really killer monologues. It's cruel that his death comes when he and Matt weren't on the best of terms, but he went out a hero, which is how I'm sure he would have wanted to go. I'm going to find the tweet because he mentioned Marcy. I want to give that actress a shout out. I retweeted D'Onofrio's tweet of the two of them going to vote yesterday. Well, Matt, on uh, Marcy actress Amy Rutberg, she tweeted out a picture yesterday where we're recording this the day after Election Day for you to listen on Friday, uh, November 9th. And, uh, you know, this picture that she tweeted out on uh, Election Day of her and Vincent D'Onofrio going to vote taken by um, Mr. D'Onofrio's wife there. Just a, a nice little thing to uh, actors in New York going to, uh, you know, exercise their civic duty. Well, Pete, wrapping up 084's email here, I, like many others, love Special Agent Nadim. Marvel and Netflix give characters like him and Agent Dina Madani such depth and flaws and strengths and avoid writing them as stereotypes. And he actually follows logic, which is rare on TV. A lesser show would, uh, would have Bullseye do his sneaking around with teammates being none the wiser, but I was so proud of Ray for making the connections and following to peg him as a suspect. You know good police work, right? Go figure, right? Lastly, out of breath, I apologize, but you really should blame the new showrunner and the cast and crew for being incredible. I'll be back soon with my thoughts on the last three and the season of the whole once I can make sense of them. Pete, I will say to 084, no need to apologize. We love your thoughts. Keep them coming. Absolutely comprehensive, to say the least. Pete, an honor to get Support for the podcast by way of uh, such great thoughts there like we just had from 084. Also, great to know that we are listener-supported for the costs incurred along the way. 
via people who visit patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Absolutely. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. And I believe there's a little something, something we just put up there. If not very soon for you to check out. And uh, there's all sorts of levels you can contribute to past that. So thank you so much uh, to our patrons. Absolutely. They, uh, they are the, the engine inside the machine that keeps things going here, especially when it comes to the bandwidth and the storage and the bleeps and the bloops and the bits and the bites and all of that. And uh, we could not do it without them. Pete, there's always a treat, though, and that's always for free. That's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,150 followers. Can't be wrong. And Pete, while I'm personally on Twitter, is looking back lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on fantasticgeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and like oe 4 did on Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more facebook.com slash fantastic geek with the ph all one word like it today well pete we will be back on sunday to talk episode 311 of daredevil as this season continues to uh, amaze us a marvelous season with that pete i will say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word namaste Back in New York.